Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today God speaks to us from 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So not too long ago, thank you. Not too long ago, uh, I was on an elevator, uh, and a woman uh, that I didn't know on the elevator uh, asked me, where are you from? Uh, and I was kind of jarred by the question, uh, and I, I kind of stuttered a response, and I said, uh, from here, from New York. To which she replied, no, like, where are you from from? Um, I know that for many, uh, this conversation is a familiar one. In the United States, uh, if you're not white, likely someone's asked you some version of that question. For someone that is uh, quite uh, ethnically ambiguous, uh, I have spent a, a lot of time fielding some version of that question uh, over the years, uh, and I never know how to respond to that question because most people, they aren't looking for the real answer. Uh, because the real answer is that uh, my mom, uh, she was born and raised in Nagaland, but because no one's ever heard of Nagaland before, uh, there needs to be further explanation. Nagaland is now uh, a state of India, uh, which is made up of mostly indigenous tribal peoples, uh, but as a result, like a lot of other places in the world, uh, as a result of European colonial powers getting involved in regions that weren't their own and redrawing lines uh, that aren't theirs to draw, uh, Nagaland was forcibly made part of India by the British and the Indian governments. Uh, but as 
a people. They have absolutely no ethnic or cultural ties or relationship to India, but nonetheless, they are Indian by national identity, at least by those who are not Naga. However, if one were to do DNS, DNA testing or uh, genetic testing, which I've done, Nagas are classified almost entirely as Chinese. Uh, and so, just for clarity, uh, my mom is culturally Naga, nationalistically Indian, and apparently genetically Chinese. Um, my grandfather on my father's side is Lebanese, uh, and then my grandmother on my father's side has uh, European roots, but she, there's also a family from uh, Chile in that mix. So this hodgepodge of my family's background uh, makes answering the question, where are you from, pretty complicated. Uh, I could pretty much fit in the Middle East or North Africa or Central or South America or some parts of Mediterranean uh, Europe. That has been very much the case uh, because I have noticed that I regularly uh, disappoint my Chinese friends or Arabic friends or Spanish-speaking neighbors uh, when I only speak English. And living in East Harlem, I am regularly having to say, Lo siento, mi amigo, no habla espanol. Uh, un poquito, un poquito. All that to say, I don't think this woman on the elevator wanted that answer. She simply thought, hey, there's something different about you. You don't seem like you're from here. Where are you really from? Where are you from? What do you call home? Where is home? Those are actually really powerful questions for all of us to have to answer, especially when you identify with a people who are different from those that surround you. It is, to varying degrees, an experience of exile, not feeling like your home. Now, if you've been with us, we have been in a series called uh, A Public People. It is a series addressing how the church is a distinct people. And today, we want to consider that the church, the people of God, are a distinct people living in a land that is not their home, that they are a people of exile. And that like my experience with a woman on the elevator, as a people identified with another land, there are characteristics that ought to make Christians stand out. But also, as a people, we should, ironically, desire to invite other people, welcome other people into that exile. Because ironically, it is through exile that we actually experience true home. So to consider that paradox, let's consider first that the church is a people, second that the church is an exiled people, and then finally that the church is a redeemed people. All right, so first, the church as a people. Uh, there are so many different images that Peter draws on here in, um, in our passage that paint a, a portrait, a picture of what the church is. However, there are two analogies that I want to draw out uh, in particular. Specifically, he speaks of the idea of the church being a community uh, that is a spiritual house in verse 5. And then in verse 9, he calls the church a chosen people. Let's look at those quickly, understand what he's talking about. So first, with a spiritual house, Peter begins by addressing the church as uh, being living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. What is that about? Well, Peter's focusing his arguments around many different prominent uh, themes uh, that were important to the Jewish people. Again, we could spend a lot of time unpacking all of them. However, this image of a, of a spiritual house is very interesting because first, uh, a house certainly evokes an image of home. 
an important theme when considering exile. But the second is that the idea of a spiritual house was another way of describing the temple of God. Now, the temple for the Jewish people was of greatest importance. This temple was built at great expense and great care and great detail. It was there uh, where the, the worship would take place, where sacrifices took place. For the Jewish people, they saw the temple as an assurance that God's presence was with them because it was in the temple where the presence of God was said to reside. Bottom line, in many ways, the temple or this spiritual house represented a divine presence where heaven and earth met. It was a big deal. But Peter is now saying that the temple is actually no longer a building where God's presence resides. It's no longer where true worship takes place. Rather, this new temple or this spiritual house is now being built with living stones. Peter is saying that there is a new place where God's presence resides, a new way God is worshipped. The temple is no longer in one specific location. Now the temple is not a building, but consists of a group of people, all of which leads to this second analogy that Peter uses, which is to describe those people as a chosen people. Who are these living stones? Who are these chosen people? Well, in, uh, Peter explains it. Uh, in this second analogy, in verses 9 and 10, Peter now calls these living, living stones this chosen people, or as some other translations say, a chosen race. Again, would have been very significant language for those who would have heard this. Uh, again, the Jewish people of that day would have very much understood themselves to be the chosen people of God. This goes back to Genesis 12, when God promises Abraham, who is the father of Israel, that he will make them a great nation, a great people. These statements here in 1 Peter are reminiscent of Deuteronomy 7, where Israel is told that they are a chosen people, God's treasured possession. Again, this was a big deal to be the chosen people of God. And yet again, speaking to Christians, Peter is saying this new community that is being formed, it's this that is the chosen people. This new community is the people of God. It's important to note that Many of the uh, readers of Peter's letter, they would have been Jewish, but they also would have been non-Jewish Gentiles. And Peter takes the main distinctions, right? This is what's so important. Peter is taking the main distinctions of what it meant to be God's people historically with the Jewish people, what it meant to be a distinct community, and he universalizes them and applies them to a whole new group of people. I mean, the point being is that Peter is making abundantly clear that there is a new community, not localized around a physical location or physical temple, but the people of God are now no longer going to be part of any one ethnic or cultural group. Rather, in context, Jesus and his followers are cumulatively together the temple, the people of God. And now this will include a staggeringly diverse group of people. Let me pause there for a moment, because every time we hit this fact, I feel it necessary to draw it out because this is one of the most unique dynamics of the Christian faith. Unlike any other world religion, and even secularism, the Christian faith is not centralized around any one geographic area or people group. I mean, most world religions are dominated by a particular cultural expression or geographic region. I mean, even secularism is based largely in Western culture, and in particular, white Western culture. However, the Christian faith 
does not have these cultural and geographic restrictions. The Christian faith does not have a common language that we must all know, or the Christian faith doesn't have a dominant cultural expression that's required in order to be fully Christian. And the Christian faith has resources to keep it from ever becoming dominated by any one particular culture. I mean, every culture is going to struggle with this, but our preferred cultural expressions of Christianity are not true Christianity. It's an expression of Christianity. And again, it's, it's hard sometimes for us to be able to see something more broad and wide. But God is working amongst Christians all over the world in ways that are very unique to those people that would be very different for us. I mean, just me and my own genetic uh, upbringing, right? Churches in Nagaland or in India or in Lebanon, or in Chile, or in the UK, all those churches look vastly different from one another. They look vastly different than the church that we're experiencing right here in East Harlem, or those that are up on the Upper East Side, or in Bed-Stuy, or in Flushing. So different, and yet, though we are all so different, we're all doing the same thing, which is worshiping a risen Savior, because as Peter is arguing, we are still one spiritual house, one people. The Church of Jesus is the most diverse institution that the world has ever known and will ever see. Do you see how unique this is? This, however, of course, brings us to a bit of a challenge. Because if you're going to be a people, we also need to identify the reality that to be a unified people means that we will be bringing our differences together. And when we have differences amongst us, there can produce tensions. When Christians realize that their true people, their true home, is not amongst the contexts in which they find themselves, tensions arise. And according to verse 11, Christians become foreigners and exiles. An experience of exile or being alienated from one's true home, living amongst another people, is inevitable for Christians who take seriously what it means to be God's people which brings us, not just that the people of God are a people, but that the people of God, the church, is actually an exiled people. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, the notion of exile is really an ongoing theme all throughout the Bible. It actually begins at the beginning with Adam and Eve, who are exiled from the, the garden, which was their truest experience of home. Uh, this exile experienced by Adam and Eve is an exile that we still today experience. Uh, the people of God are Fast forward many years later, the people of God uh, end up in a state of exile when they end up in Egypt. Uh, they lived in but were not part of Egypt. Rather, they were this distinct people amongst the Egyptians. And though eventually, if you know the story, the history of Israel, they would eventually become their own people with their own home and a temple, because of their idolatry and their wickedness and injustice, they lost that home and were exiled in the pagan city of Babylon. They essentially had to go from Jerusalem, their city, to Babylon, this foreign city. They were now a distinct people living amongst another people. And drawing on those experiences, the, the New Testament writers describe the people of God in similar kinds of ways, the current people of God in similar kinds of ways. You know, you have places like uh, Paul in Philippians 3. He's ta he talks about how Christians have an ultimate citizenship that is not here, but a citizenship that's in heaven. 
You have, of course, places like what we just heard read about the fact that Christians are to be foreigners and exiles. And the tension is that Christians are a distinct people who are also, though, called to live faithfully amongst the nations of the earth in which they find themselves, but those whose true loyalty are not citizens of those nations, but of the kingdom of God. And not holding that tension has actually created extraordinarily problematic consequences. When Christians fail to live faithfully as the people of God by forgetting that they are exiles in this world. Because for some, there's a tendency toward overemphasizing one's spiritual heavenly citizenship, forgetting about earthly involvement. But then there's another failure that can happen where some, they overemphasize their earthly involvement, forgetting their heavenly, uh, heavenly citizenship. Let me speak to that, those two extremes for a moment. Uh, someone has once said, I don't know who first said this, but someone at one point said that Christians can be so heavenly minded that be, they become no good, no earth, they have no earthly good, something, something to that effect. That our minds can so quickly be about heaven and what's to come that we forget what it means to actually be faithfully present here in the place that God's called us. In other words, we focus so much on a reality that is to come that we forget about the now. And the great example of, uh, of this is Israel, actually, when they were exiled in Babylon. Again, they gave up Jerusalem and were sent to Babylon. And the people of God were, uh, if you, again, know their story, they were in this land that was not their own. And the temptation that they had in front of them was to reject and ignore what was happening around them in the place where they lived, which was Babylon. But God did not find it sufficient for them to reject or to isolate themselves from the place that they were in, which was Babylon. And famously in Jeremiah 29, God calls them through the prophet to build homes, to marry and have children, to give those children in marriage, to plant gardens, and to seek the peace and prosperity of the city and pray for it. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it proper, prospers, you too will prosper. He tells the people, as God's people, to work for the flourishing of the place in which they live. Don't be so consumed by a desire, Israel, to get back to Jerusalem that you forget about what it means to care for and love and invest in Babylon, the place in which you live. And so Christians, part of what it means to be in exile is that God calls us to, be, to not be so consumed by the ultimate expression of home that we forget to seek the peace and prosperity of the city that he's called us to now. We cannot be so heavenly minded that we have no earthly good. But the flip side of all of that is also a temptation. Uh, of course, there, is this, there, there can be this tendency to overemphasize earthly home and to be too focused on what's happening here in the now. You know, the alternative for Israel was to cease being a distinct people and instead just become like the Babylonians. And this is actually what Paul is warning against us, uh, warning against in uh, verse 11. He says that as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. In other words, you must live lives distinct from those that are around you. For to do so is to make much, much of God, and to the point of our series, 
It's because we are to be a public people with a public faith in all the places that we inhabit. And some of us are too lured by the thinking and the claims and the experiences found in this earthly home that we forget that we are not actually home and we forget to reflect our true home, which is the kingdom of God, not the kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. And we must balance that Christians are an exiled people who also should be seeking the peace and prosperity of this home while at the same time living in a distinct way that reflects the kingdom of God and not this earthly kingdom. And not doing so, again, will result in egregious failures that we have seen all throughout church history, but that we also see very much today. I mean, consider what the consequences could look like if we err on either, in either way. You know, if we're too heavenly-minded, we very quickly can uh, see this apathy begin to grow in us toward what is happening right now. There's a, a willingness to excuse or ignore or to justify unrighteousness or injustice that might be around us. I mean, there's a, a whole stream of thought that historically and today that, just as an example, right, consider the kinds of things that are attached to Christianity in the West, particularly in the United States. Right? There's a whole stream of thought that attempts to justify things like colonial imperialism or even enslavement as being justified because it led to conversions. I remember once someone told me fairly recently that for him it doesn't make sense to help the poor if they don't also convert because we really just need to be caring about their souls. That is unfaithfulness. And even though it supposedly is heavenly-minded, it's actually wicked, deeply wicked. But then, of course, you've got the flip side. You can have this earthly-mindedness where there's this uncritical embrace of worldly ideas and passions and perspectives, calling good what God calls evil, living in ways that seem right in our own eyes, while all the while rejecting God's commands or desires for his creation. It is too often being swept up by the newest trends or beliefs of our society, and in the process, practically no longer being distinct from how the rest of the world lives. No longer thinking about what it means to be different in the way that we think, in the way that we act. It is forgetting that Jesus says that following him will require daily picking up our cross, daily dying to our own desires, and such a willingness to be earthly-minded and rejecting submission to God's intention is also wickedness. Being overly heavenly-minded, being overly earthly-minded, rejecting that we are exiles seeking peace and uh, prosperity of the places in which we live will lead us down paths of wickedness. All of us here lean toward, if, if we are being honest, lean toward either being too heavenly-minded and therefore detached from all that surround us, surrounds us, or too earthly-minded and therefore too easily align with that which surrounds us. It's a tendency that we're all going to have because living in exile actually requires an enormous amount of effort and intentionality, and too often we don't give that intentionality. And we forget that our true home, our true belonging, is as a people of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, and as such, faithfulness is to be faithfully present in this world, seeking its peace and prosperity by living in a distinct way as a people of righteousness 
and justice. And I'm confident, again, everyone here, including myself, we are failing, failing to varying degrees to do so well. I mean, some of us here, we are too apathetic to the plight of others around us. And we're pacified by the belief that, well, this world is broken. One day Jesus will fix it, so I'm just going to go about my day. We think too much about Jerusalem, and we think too little about Babylon. But some of us here, we're too cozy with this world and its ways, and we are pacified by the belief that, well, the world tells me happiness is to embrace my desires and my passions and the like. But embracing those desires and those ideas and passions, we reject the commands of God. And as a result, we think too much about Babylon, and we think too little about Jerusalem. But here's the tension. The call to live as an exile, I recognize, is a difficult one. It's, in, it's a difficult one to endure if we don't have a vision for the beauty of that exile. Because if we were just called to live in that tension, I don't think we'd actually be able to do it. We have to see the exile itself as beautiful, and we have to see the exile as the only way that we truly will experience the home that we desire and that we crave for. Which brings us finally to what makes exile beautiful, is that the church is not just a people, the church is not just an exiled people, but that the church is a redeemed people. We find a glimpse of, of how the church, the people of God, were established. And when we see how the church was established, it's there that we actually begin to experience the beauty of exile. In verse 9 and 10, Peter says this. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me draw out a couple things. The church, according to Peter here, was established by God through him bringing people out of darkness and into his light and by showing them mercy. Bringing them out of darkness into light and by showing them mercy. And verse 5 tells us that all of that happened through Jesus. The establishment of the church as a community is the result of one thing and one thing only. The church exists because of the mercy of God through the accomplished work of Jesus. It is only by what he has done that anything I just described occurs. The church is built on him and it's modeled after him. I mean, consider what Jesus has done in order to establish this people. You know, Jesus, the, the, the Son of God, had an infinite community and home with the Father and the Spirit. This triune God in himself has the greatest depth of community and home that exists. Yet Jesus steps out of that community and leaves his transcendent home, steps into a broken world bound by time and space, a world of injustice and selfishness, a world that is so often divided, a creation that was created to live in perfect harmony with God and with one another, a creation that flourished in the garden. You know, in Genesis 1, it was the picture, perfect communion, with God and with one another. Yet as a result of sin, we were all exiled from that communion, from that home. And ever since that day, if you ever long for that sense of rest and home, it is because since Genesis 3, 
in the fall of man, we have been nomadic exiles, desperately seeking for what was lost in the garden. And Jesus took on that experience of never being home. In Matthew 8, it tells us that Jesus had no place to rest his head. He had no home. He experienced our restlessness. But then he goes to the cross and experiences the greatest loss of home that the universe has ever known as he willingly takes on our sin, my sin, your sin upon himself, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experience the torment of alienation. And he did this in order to make a way for us to experience the home that he was willing to give up, to bring us back into right relationship with God. Remember, I mentioned earlier that the spiritual house was where the presence of God resided. Jesus makes it so that the presence of God, by the Spirit of God, now comes to the spiritual, this new spiritual house that consists of those who trust in Jesus. Jesus has taken a bunch of nomadic exiles and given them a home in the presence of God. And this makes the church unlike any other type of community. I mean, most communities, think about them, most communities that you might find yourself in require your contribution to be accepted. To be accepted. Uh, they require you to live in a certain place or be a certain type of person, to have certain experiences, to have achieved certain kinds of things. And only then, if you meet all those identif identifying markers necessary for acceptance, will you then be accepted. Yet communion with God does not require you or I to meet any expectations or have certain qualifications or qualities or be a certain kind of person. Entrance into God's kingdom is not based on merit or accomplishment. Rather, entrance into God's community, into that home, is based on the merit and accomplishments of Jesus alone. No one is part of God's community because they were good enough or accomplished enough. Rather, they are part of God's community because Jesus was good enough and accomplished all. And so living as an exile should not be viewed as some heavenly burden. Rather, when we think about what it took to actually make us these exiles, right? People that are alienated from this world and yet have this hope of a coming home. As a result of the redemption provided by Jesus, Jesus it's not a burden, but exile becomes a great joy. Because what was accomplished to make us that people living as exiles actually provides the very thing that we've longed for. Through exile, we experience true home just the presence of God. And if, you've, if you're here and you've never had that sense of home, find rest. Find rest in that sense of home in the work of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you have known such rest and home. I encourage you to live in light of that mercy that you've been given. Right? As living stones, be people that reflect and declare the goodness of God in Christ, who is your cornerstone, seeking the peace and prosperity of the world in which he's called you. I'll close with this. So I started with that experience in the elevator. And as I thought about that experience, and particularly how it relates to this topic of exile, what's interesting about that experience is that on the one hand, uh, I was born and raised in the United States. I know no other home. But my presence and the way this woman experienced me revealed that there was something more to my story. And as odd as of, of an interaction as it was, uh, she was right. There is much more to my story. She didn't want to hear it that day, I'm sure, but there is much more to my story. 
And as I think about that, and in the season of being a public people with a public faith, we actually live very similar to that little experience that I had on the elevator. I mean, we all understand that we are a people that are distinct from the people that we find ourselves amongst. And I wonder if we are living in such a way, right? Well, do people experience us in such a way that they think, mm, you're not from here, right? Are you from from somewhere else? I mean, that's what it means to be a public people, living a public faith, that as people interact with us, they recognize there's something different about us. And I guess the other, the other thing I would say is when they are ready to hear the story, which inevitably someone is really going to want to hear the rest of that story, are we ready to have those conversations with them? This will be my final plug that you should attend the class this afternoon. <laughs> but do we take seriously what it means to have those kinds of conversations and to be ready for them? That, my friends, is a public faith. And I pray that God would help us to not only live as exiles, but then give us opportunities to reflect that other kingdom in the way that we live, the way that we think, and that as people experience it, it gives us opportunities to welcome them into exile, an exile that leads to true home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who makes us the people. And we thank you that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to gain entrance into that people except trust in what Jesus has done. He has accomplished all that is necessary for us to be welcomed. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. And Lord, we, we come to you as an exiled people, asking, us that, asking that you would give us what we need to live faithfully as an exiled people, a people whose citizenship we recognize is elsewhere, Jerusalem, yet at the same time giving us a desire, a passion to seeking the peace and prosperity of Babylon, the place in which you've called us. Lord, would you give us opportunities as we live faithfully to share with others what it means to step into that experience of exile, an exile that leads us to true home. Lord, I thank you for Redeemer East Harlem, this small little expression of home a small little glimpse of what you've accomplished with this new people. We thank you for our church. We thank you for those, even as we today thought about membership, those uh, formally and officially stepping into membership with this exiled people. We thank you, Lord, for how you've drawn us together. Use us. Make us a people for the glory of your name to present to the world true home. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.